Music Box Films is bringing the art house to your house with Music Box Direct, a new streaming service dedicated to curating a diverse repertoire of films and television series from around the world. Try it free for one month on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, or desktop by signing up online with promo code FILM at musicbox.direct. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. This week, we celebrate two different strands of Indian cinema, looking at the rich past and the vibrant present. First, we look at the landmark Film at Lincoln Center retrospective for Ritwak Katak, director of The Cloud-Capped Star and other films. For that part of the discussion, we'll be joined by two of the series' programmers, Moynak Biswas and former Film Society Director of Programming, Richard Pena. Then, for the second half of our episode, in connection with our new November-December issue, we'll be talking about the Tamil filmmaker Vetra Maron with Rob Sweeney, who wrote about the director's bloody portraits of South India. Our special guest host for the episode is assistant editor Devika Girish. Let's go to their conversations. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, assistant editor at Film Comment, and I'm delighted to be hosting a very special two-part episode dedicated to two Indian filmmakers, one old and one new. In this first half, we are discussing the maverick Bengali writer and director, Ritwik Ghatak. Today's discussion is occasioned by a wonderful retrospective of Ghatak's work put up this week by Film at Lincoln Center, which is showing seven out of the eight features directed by Ghatak. And to talk about Ghatak's work and the series, I'm very happy to be joined by... Moinak Biswas. Hi. Uh, I'm from Calcutta. I teach film studies there at Jadhapur University. I'm glad to be here. And I'm Richard Pena. I'm a professor of film studies at Columbia University. And both Richard and Moinak are co-organizers of this retrospective, so the best people to talk about the series and also Katak's work. And I thought... I just want to add, with our colleague, uh, Gayatri Spivak, who's my Columbia oh, colleague, so third organizer from our side. I thought we could start off with you, Moinak. You, you know, are very familiar with Ghatak's work in your own scholarship and research. And I thought maybe we could start off with you situating Ghatak a little bit for our listeners who may not be um, very familiar with his work, what kind of filmmaker he was, and also the political and cultural context in which he was making movies, because that was a very specific time of both crisis and great artistic production in India and specifically in Bengal. Yeah. Ghatak, as you know, was born in 1925. So when he was growing up in the then undivided Bengal, times were quite, uh, on the one hand, quite creative, uh, productive in terms of the arts, but also, politically speaking, very, very, you know, tumultuous times. I mean, all sorts of things were happening and uh, kind of there was a dawning realization that the country was slowly moving towards the independence from colonialism and so on. Uh, So very, very uh, active, dynamic times, but also quite dangerous 
quite at times of great misery great upheavals to put him in a con- in context one could talk about b- the kind of flowering of what we often call in bengal a post tigor post rabindranath tigor uh, literature which had uh, uh you know the stalwarts of that kind of new literature new poetry some of them were quite close to gatak when he was growing up and the more important thing probably would be the radical arts movement which took off from the late 1930s and uh, came into a kind of uh, you know a mature shape in the early 1940s especially around an organization called the indian people's theater association which was formed immediately in the wake of this great bengal famine of 1943 uh, which took the lives of at least 3.5 million people so gadak sort of as an artist as he was growing up went through all this he started off in theater and in literature he was a, an active theater person a playwright stage actor theater director and also an editor of theater journals throughout his life this is something that we sometimes don't remember mm. and uh, he also was a short story writer to begin with published in some uh, well known bengali literary journals and he kind of uh, was kind of self taught in filmmaking but around 1950 he kind of started assisting people in 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 the industry got involved in one or two projects then 1953 he made the first film which never got released in his life but he kind of his, he and his friends made the made his made the first film that is credited to gatak called the citizen nagarik but see this period roughly 1943 to 53 was also the most productive period of the what we were calling the indian people's theater association the radical arts movement in general it kind of gave rise to and it kind of you know this organization had in its fold some of the most important writers uh actors film later filmmakers songwriters musicians visual artists so it was a period of great uh social misery political upheaval but on the other hand a great cultural cultural flowering if you like that katak kind of you know passed through And Richard I was wondering do you remember when you first encountered Ghatak's work and where that was and what film it was mm-hmm. I remember it very well uh the first Ghatak films that I saw I saw in 1981 at the Rotterdam Film Festival uh that year i mean rotterdam was much smaller back then uh they had invited two indian filmmakers whose work i already knew somewhat because i had seen some of their films in new york that were kumar shahani and mani kal and both kumar and mani were gatak students when gatak taught at the uh, film institute in pune and besides being students and friends they were Uh, how could you say the greatest promoters of Gatak works and the, the importance so at at Rotterdam that year they showed Ajantrik uh, also known as Pathetic Fallacy and Megidekatara also known as the Cloud Cap Star and I guess seeing these films they were just for me so magnificent that I said this is clearly a a major filmmaker about whom I've got to learn a lot more and uh, especially with the help of Kumar a few years later I was working back then as the curator of film at the Art Institute of Chicago we were able to organize the first Gatak retrospective in the United States which was in 1984 
I definitely want to circle back and talk more about Ajantrik and the Cloud Kept Star as well, pretty major works. But I was wondering if you both could also tell me a little more about your experience in putting together this particular retrospective that's taking place at Film at Lincoln Center. Uh, what occasioned it? What was your experience working with the archives? Because many of these um, films being screened are new restorations, which is incredible. I've only seen many of these films in really bad quality on you know, on TV or like on the internet, Cloudcapped Star got a recent restoration through Criterion mm-hmm. and it's available online. But some of the others like Ajantarek, I'm very curious to see what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk a little about the process of getting all that together. Let me ask, answer the first part and then Moinak will answer the second part about the archives. Uh, in a way, I think the Gatak Project came out of uh, a series and a conversation of our third partner in this troika, uh, who is Gayatri Chakrotzi Spivak, who, of course, is one of the great literary scholars in the world and teaches at Columbia University, one of the founders of post-colonial studies, etc. And a few years ago, uh, there was a kind of celebration of the work of Maharashtri Devi, the great Bengali writer, and who, among other things, was Gatsak's niece. And we began talking. In fact, Moynak at this conference showed a beautiful film that he had done on Gatsak. And so Gatsak was in the air. And talking to Gayatri afterwards, um, she was interested in the idea of Gatsak not as seen within the context of what you might call Indian or Bengali studies, but how especially people outside of that particular discipline would see and understand Gatak. So we began talking and the idea came up to do a number of seminars in different places. And in the end, there was one in Santa Barbara, one in Calcutta, and one here in New York, where we brought together a wide variety of scholars who were obviously knowledgeable, but weren't knowledgeable necessarily about either Bengal or Indian cinema or especially Gatak. Uh, and in a certain way, challenged them to sort of offer their thoughts. And uh, I was at the one here in New York, and it was marvelous because they were really excellent people. For example, Professor Monty Diawara, who's a great scholar of African cinema, offered really wonderful insights from his particular vantage point of what he saw of Gatsak's work. So after all of this, I mean, somewhere along the way, we said, well, we really should do a, a final sum up of these seminars and at the same time, a retrospective of his work. And so at that point, I approached Dennis Lim from here at the at Film at Lincoln Center, and he was enormously welcoming and said he would love to do it. And then I turned to Moynak. Yeah, and we actually naturally turned to the uh, National Film Archive of India, located in Pune. The, the rights to Gadak's films are kind of complicated, like many other filmmakers, but with him particularly because he his life was itself a bit kind of disorganized, to, to put it mildly, as you know. So for some films, nobody really knows where the rights are and so on, where the uh, you know, original films are or whatever. But thankfully, in recent years, the National Film Archive, especially under the stewardship of the current director, Prakash Magdum, and we should thank him and his film preservation officer, Kiran Divar, especially for this, for this retrospective. They have been taking care, sort of rest, digitally restoring, remastering a range of films. So thankfully, the, while uh, Professor Spivak, Richard and others were thinking about putting together this retrospective, 
we already had the National Film Archive in a, on a slightly firmer ground, as it were, so far as the film availability was concerned. Two of the films, Cloud Capped Star and uh, River, Tetash, Na- yeah. River Named Tetash, they're not being sourced from the archives finally because, uh, you know, the Criterion, the Criterion and Janus films. Right, exactly. Janus mm-hmm. films, we already had them. Mm. And the five other films have been dispatched by the Pune Film Archives in uh, DCP. And this is actually going to be a very, very special occasion because none of us uh, have seen some of these films in this kind of format and this kind of quality. Especially, let me mention not only these films that Richard has already mentioned, but also, and you have mentioned Argentrique, but also The Runaway. Runaway has been one of the most neglected films in Ghatak's oeuvre. Ghatak himself has hardly sort of written about it, you know, because he has written very eloquent pieces on his own films, you know, some of the best commentaries on his own. He has not written about this film. And we students, I mean, people who have studied Ghatak for some years, you know, we have not really looked at that film that seriously, only because, primarily because, the film existed in a very, very bad shape. Mm. Now, when you look at this restored copy, I've seen a, an MP4 version of that for the subtitling purpose. I can tell you that actually you can see things which are startling, quite mm. remarkable. It, it is now going to take place in Ghatak studies, find its proper place in Ghatak studies. Wow. And is there any other film that you want to mention, a title that, you know, was either previously neglected or is going to be available in a version, you know, not even, you know, approximable before? As you mentioned, he only made eight feature films. Right. And we're showing seven of them, so we're almost we've almost <laughs> spoken about all of them at this point. But uh, I myself am looking forward to seeing the new version of Jukti uh, Tako Argapo: uh, Reason, Debate, and a Tale. Uh, just because not only is it an extraordinary film, but again, it's a film that suffered from a lot of yeah. bad, you know, so-called restorations, which really you mm-hmm. know, did hardly anything to improve its quality. Yeah, Reason, Debate, and a Tale is another film too look out for because it, it kind of the last film that Ghadak made in a very bad physical condition he was an alcoholic and he, yeah also he kind suffered. of suffered all sorts of mm-hmm. nervous disorders had to be constantly kind of you know he was put in in, in hospitals a number of times this one also suffered from bad copies the, you know I think the reception of Risen Debate in a Tale Juki Taku has as Richard pointed out has never been seen in a good condition. And this is also an opportunity to, to, to catch that film in, in a proper shape. And also Golden Line, Shubano Rekha. Hmm. And um, maybe we can talk about some of the movies now and use that as a way to discuss his um, sure. approach and ideology. I think Ajantrik is actually a, a, an interesting place to start. It's one of his earlier films. And also, it's such a strange film. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, I think Ray said about Ghatak's work, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, Ghatak's work is, you can't really place it in any kind of tradition. You, he, He's a true original. You see a little bit of maybe influence of Soviet filmmakers, but you can't really see European classicists who were influencing Ray a lot at the time. And I think that film captures his originality. Like, And maybe I should talk a little bit about what it's about. Yeah. Um, it's about a taxi driver named Bimal, who has an unusual attachment to his jalopy, just battered up car uh, that he has christened Jagaddal. 
And he is this loner. He's an alcoholic, which is also sort of a recurring theme in in some of these films. Um, characters who are beleaguered by various sorts of you know grief and ailments. And it seems like Jagadal is his only companion in the world. The film hints at the fact that it's al- it's almost like the car is for him almost like a romantic companion. What I've always found very interesting is. Everyone in this village regards Bimal as some sort of crazy freak who thinks his car is a person. But then Ghatak uses certain sound cues and certain scenes that seem to bring the car to life. And there's almost like a subtle sci-fi hint to the film. Uh, and it all comes together in at this moment where I think India was confronting this onslaught of Western modernity. So it's a very interesting way of commenting on that cultural context in, in the form of a film that's can be very tonally disjointed at times, can feel like there's a lot of characters just crossing paths and maybe not cohering into a very clear sense of narrative. Mm -hmm. But it has a very clear sense of mood and it has a very, I think, a clear attitude towards what was happening in the world at that time. See, in a way, you're right. Ajantri, you said you used the expression strange. It is is strange. (laughs) Even within Gadek's career, there are still some people who do not really like his melodramatic turn mm. that came about, let's say, somewhat with the runaway, but more prominently and very clearly with uh, Cloud Capped Star and kind of fear. So people who are not so fond of Ghatak are still extremely kind of appreciative of and uh, like uh, Ajantrik a lot. The reason being that it is easier, if you think of the larger picture that you're talking about, it's easier probably to think of, to, to re- receive Ajantrik as part of the quote-unquote new realism that was uh, sort of, you know, so that came into Indian cinema say roughly around 1955, we, we mentioned in 1955 because it was the year of Ray's debut, debut film, Song of the Road, Pathe mm-hmm. Pacheli. We t- take that as a kind of watershed moment in India. So uh, Ajantik seems to be fitting into that, that kind of moment more comfortably than Ghatak's other films. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way, I mean, on a kind of sort of relatively, relatively speaking. So in that sense, if you think of the way he explores landscapes, he explores kind of, you know, know, human uh, relationships up to a point, especially the landscape, especially the shooting style, the outdoor shooting, location shooting and so on. It, of course, also gives you a kind of general uh, sense of what was happening in many decolonizing post-colonial nations at that time, where in many of them, as you know, the Italian neorealism left a very, very strong impact Mm. in the development of national cinema. So all of that, it's easier for for us to fit, if we want, Ajantik into that picture. But if you look carefully, it actually doesn't fit. Mm. You know, if you think of this, even the man and landscape, man and nature relationship, just to give you one clue, Mm. something that he has followed throughout his life from Ajantik onwards, the seven films. I'm keeping aside the first one, mm. which is uh, something that doesn't really fit into this picture, Nagarik. But all the other seven films, he's been doing the same thing. If you look carefully at moments of, at critical moments in the film, for example, when he, with the woman, he finds, him, finds her again abandoned in the landscape, mm. puts, tries to put her on a train, the car stops, 
breaks down and so if you just look at that moment mm. for example you see that he's doing something very peculiar with the human body he's just pushing the protagonists bimal and even the woman sometimes is mm. pushing them in the, the in the corner of the frame sometimes you just see this much of a head just the 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 forehead mm. or just one part of the face not even the full face and the rest of the frame is occupied by trees by the sky by nature mm. you know all these plateau like kind of landscape so you constantly see that the landscape is now the foreground even though the human being is in the hmm. is in real foreground the human being is pushed into the background he does this quite systematically in his films so if you if you just follow this clue this is one of the clues where he doesn't fit into the so called realist picture he's not that traditional that kind of standard he's not that humanist filmmaker that we take the other realists to be including ray mm. because f- for him the human consciousness is hardly at the center of the world if there is a human consciousness a self an i you know a kind of prevailing consciousness through which the world is looked upon or looked at it's kind of he kind of he is more interested in you know breaking it distributing it into the landscape mm-hmm. i think actually in your introduction you mentioned about uh the car as his companion but perhaps even a more important idea is that he sees the car as being alive and that he doesn't see a separation between his consciousness or the other humans and the consciousness of the car and that i think goes into what moynak was just saying i mean it's a kind of almost decentered you know humanism in a certain way where he basically sees everything in the world as being kind of of equal sort of status in a way so jagadal is every bit as much a a being as say uh, sultan the young boy that he establishes a relationship with or or things like that and it's interesting to see how gatak treats that attitude i mean one might think that it would lead to a very sentimental film for example one where there was almost like a folklore or almost a condescension and in fact it's just the opposite bimol's not a very pleasant character at all in fact at times he's rather mean and even repulsive and is sort of plays with that belief in a much larger context where there are constant references for example to indian tribal culture mm-hmm. you know we see a lot of interjections almost seemingly out of nowhere you spoke before about narrative for all the aspects of cinema we said that was one of the ones that nagatak cared least about you know he's much more interested in effect than he is i think in coherent narratives in that way and we get several moments in the film where these various tribal groups simply explode onto the screen because in a certain way he's establishing a kind of continuity with even what you might think of as a pre-vedantic tradition you know in india which was much more pantheist maybe we can go now to his melodramatic turn that you just articulated and those are the films that he's actually most famous for cloud cap star and a river called titash i know he railed against this characterization but they are films filled with despair i would say it's very hard to walk away from them feeling good about the world even when you watch them so many years later they're both set in the context of partition mm-hmm. of refugee lives refugee families trying to build themselves trying to pursue artistic and other more material aspirations within the context of extreme fragmentation maybe we can start with the cloud cap star a film that the way it ends especially is like a shriek against the world 
Well, you mentioned a word which is enormously important in any discussion of God's act, and that, of course, is the partition. The partition informs just about every aspect of, I think, Gottsack's artistic personality, but especially the films you mentioned. And, you know, I think Meggie Dakatar, along with uh, E-flat, you know, Como mm-hmm. Gondar, and also Subrana Recha, I mean, sometimes they're called the partition trilogy, because there, I think, that the theme of partition, again, literally pervades each of those films and practically every scene in a way, and of course Titash as well, uh, that's very important. That was the fundamental, one might say, kind of political experience of Gatsak's life. His own family, he was from what is now uh, Bangladesh, from East Bengal, and his family moved actually prior to partition mm-hmm. to Calcutta, and he was there. But of course, he saw the ramifications of everything that went on with partition. And, you know, for him, I think it was a, a, a kind of almost more metaphysical experience than it was a political one. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I mean, you see partition emerging as a theme clearly in Barita Ke Palie, the runaway. And of course, in from Megidakatara, the trilogy that Richard just mentioned, uh, Komal Gandhari Flat and Shubhanoreka, the Golden Line, it became kind of, it kind of, became a kind of thematically consolidated and kind of became a, a primary concern. That's true. But let's also uh, remember uh, that Megidakatara, for example, does not really directly refer to partition. He will not. Uh, there is no mention of partition. But what has happened with Ghatak is that even Nagarik, the first film, sometimes people sort of you know make this mistake of t- taking that film as something that relates to partition. I don't. I, it may not be considered a mistake because partition provides a kind of pervasive horizon against which, which these things, these stories unfold in a way that's that may not be a mistake. But, but what he was doing with uh, these films, especially Megadagatara, was to actually look at, come back to a popular uh, form, let's say, a popular formation, which is the family, and the, the, you know, the family relationships, the ups and downs, you know, one brother breaking away, one sister kind of. This, was, this is staple stuff, even today, of uh, melodrama in India hmm. or in South Asia. It's staple stuff. If you look at popular television, it's still there every day on a daily basis. So he took uh, uh, a story which came out in a rather lowbrow magazine uh, written by a popular writer and he decided to kind of put things inside. So treat the story as a kind of receptacle into which he could put his own ideas. So actually uh, what was uh, what he was doing, I think, the most very interestingly, is to constantly keep these very ordinary lives uh, and open them out through the soundtrack, through the images, through certain compositions, choreography, into a, some kind of larger, larger narrative, which is the narrative of uh, a huge number of people, a whole race almost getting uprooted, moving from one part of the world to another, which is why they still resonate with us when we look at the Rohingya crisis today or the Syrian refugee crisis today you know they still be so because in in a way he was as Richard just mentioned he developed this partition theme into a larger kind of uh, metaphor Mm. for homelessness everywhere as you know modernity itself is sometimes called um, an experience of homelessness I mean it's 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 really um, 
not always you don't have to always depend upon actual partitions of countries and so on because there's uproot uprooting there's migration it's forced most of the time forced migration of peoples across borders um so this is something that he wrote when he wrote an short essay on komal gandhar the next film he said the homeless shape of life i'm quoting from him this is the exact phrase hmm. that is what i wanted to capture the homeless shape of life which is not just a political partition but you can imagine this is a larger kind of uh, you know predicament human predicament. condition yeah one film that i actually haven't seen and i'm looking forward to seeing in the series is reason debate and a tale that's what it's called i just have never had an opportunity to see it i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the film is about and also it seems like it's again a different kind of turn at least from what i'm gathering in it's kind of a more self reflexive film right. about art a meditation on his own work as a filmmaker it seems like a very autobiographical film to some extent i'll just say a couple of things cuz moynak knows the film really intimately since he did a wonderful film about that film so i'll let him talk a little bit more about it uh, it's in a way it's one of the most painfully self-aware films because quite literally during the film Gatsak knew that he was dying he knew that he didn't really have much time left because of the various physical ailments and things like that that plagued him so i mean he's really clearly creating some kind of testament but you know you can see the various forces that sort of pull the man apart he's not somebody with necessarily what you'd call a a completely clear vision but he's trying to in a certain way set up I I I kind of I could you say a most paradigm of the need to explore of the need to sort of is to reach out to search for answers even if any don't come back that's why I say so I mean it's always thrilling because it's such an inventive film and on the other hand always kind of depressing because I mean there's a real heaviness to the film at the mm-hmm. same time because you know it is a man you know trying to give you his final testament you know on screen which i don't think we have that many examples of in cinema but this is a really incredibly powerful one yeah you're right it's it's a film that uh, also stands apart it's a new turn but it's it's a one off thing in his career uh it's a discursive as you said i think you use the word self reflexivities also a reflexive kind of uh, film it is about an intellectual called nilkanto bakchi Uh, Nilkanto, let's remember, is also the name of Shiva, because Ghatak was very fond of using names in that manner, like m- uh, mythological, uh, mythological names, names allegorical, mm-hmm. allegorical is a, is a better expression. And uh, this man, who is, uh, you know, as the film begins, is abandoned by his wife. So his wife goes away with their only child, a uh, boy, because it's impossible to live with him because he's a kind of, you know, alcoholic, self-destructive person. Now it's, he's just uh, mentioned as an intellectual, not and really. you know it's not clear what he does mm. but maybe a writer filmmaker whatever he has this young unemployed young man who is an who accompanies him then you know immediately this girl who is run away from across the border during the bangladesh war so the time is 1971 uh bangladesh war who is also given this allegorical name bongobala which means that the daughter of bengal or the woman of bengal she and this uh, unemployed young man 
and then immediately they are joined by this Bijan Bhattacharya figure. Bijan Bhattacharya is a regular actor in Ghatak's films and himself a very important playwright who is also an uprooted kind of teacher, a Sanskrit teacher from from somewhere in the in the countryside. So they sort of have this, they kind of create this uh, team of and that's, and, and of, of, of uh, wanderers who basically walk through Bengal. So they walk from the city to the village to, mm. and they witness various things. Finally, because this is 71 is also the time of the Naxalite, the Maoist uh, rebellion in uh, India, in various parts of India, including Bengal. Finally, Ghatak arrives at his wife's village where she is a school teacher with the hope of a reconciliation, but that's a difficult thing. So he goes to the forest where the Naxalites are hiding and he has this encounter with them, a long conversation. But in the morning, the police, the security forces, they ambush the forest, they kill mm. off the Naxalites. Ghatak is caught in the crossfire. And he, they were not. And when you say Ghatak, you mean the uh, sorry, lead yeah. character. I mean the lead character, but he is so obviously Ghatak that, mm. and he is also played by Ghatak. Right. Yeah, right. one should mention that. Yeah. Riti Ghatak plays him, plays Nilkanta, slash himself mm -hmm. in the in the film. Uh, so this is the story, but as I said, the two backdrops are Bangladesh Liberation War, and uh, the Naxalite movement. Two absolutely tumultuous events of the 1970s. This is what 1970s mean for us. And Ghatak thought that he would make a film about this extremely important critical time, but very peculiarly, he also thought this is a good opportunity to present himself before the camera in a completely bare sort of form, bare vulnerable form, which uh, Richard just said, that this is a, a very, very, a uh, rare thing to happen. Maybe just to wrap things up, he made so many different kinds of films and it's a small but significant body of work. And I'm wondering, what do you think people watching it today and scholars sort of really rediscovering his films today, what do you think could be the takeaway, the significance? Um, how does he fit into a larger picture? I'm not sure he does fit in very well. I mm. mean, that's one of the things about Gatsak is there is something so unique about his work. Uh, obviously, there are resonances with many different people from Eisenstein to, I think, you know, 60s modernism to folklore to many different things, but it's a kind of very unique combination. Uh, you know, again, I think it's how much we don't know about film history. You know, I think mm. that to me is always what is at the heart that, you know, here is this major filmmaker who, in fact, even people who are very cine literate know little about. And fortunately, you know, we're delighted that we're able to present this here at Lincoln Center and that, in fact, you know, new generation of people will scroll. I mean, for me, I always hope that Godzak will simply become part of the critical discourse, that when people are thinking about a range of issues in cinema, that his work will also be included in those discussions. If you ask me, I think there is a modernist project in Ghatak, which is still relevant today, which actually in some ways can be rediscovered. Help us understand that modernity is not just one process or just not located, not mm. uh, without, it's not really located in one place or as, as one ideal shape. You know, this is the great, uh, I think, the endeavor that one should, one should appreciate in Ghatak. For him, Bertolt Brecht, Sergei Eisenstein, William Shakespeare, the Upanishad, the Tagore, all of these are contemporaries. Mm. 
all of these for him are immediately present now. You don't have to be a traditionalist, hark back to the past, deny the real challenge of modernity or modernization, you know, to find your own creative expression out of all this. And this is, uh, this is quite relevant even today. This will be one of the takeaways for any critical um, encounter with Katak. That was very illuminating. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Music Box Films is bringing the art house to your house with Music Box Direct, a new streaming service dedicated to curating a diverse repertoire of films and television series from around the world. Stream critically acclaimed favorites like Christian Petzold's latest thriller, Transit, Francois Ozone's World War I drama, France, Terrence Davies' Emily Dickinson biopic, A Quiet Passion, and Pavel Pawlikowski's Academy Award-winning Ida, now on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, and online. Try Music Box Direct free for one month by entering promo code FILM at musicbox.direct. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Siama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan, plus Rossellini's history films, streaming Adam Sandler, composer Fatima Al-Qadidi on Atlantics, and much more. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com. Welcome back to the Film Comment Podcast. As I mentioned earlier, this is a special two-part episode of the podcast where we're discussing two very different Indian filmmakers. Now, after a discussion of Ritwik Ghatak, we're going to be moving from Bengal in the 60s and 70s to present-day Tamil Nadu, which is a state in South India. And we're discussing a very significant contemporary Tamil filmmaker, Vetramaran, who has a whole feature dedicated to him in our most recent issue, the November-December issue, which is now available for purchase and to read online. And I have with me the author of the feature on Vetramaran. Hi, I'm R.M. Sweeney. I work for Kino Lorber producing DVDs and Blu-rays. And um, I wrote this article on Vetramaran. It's really wonderful to have you here, Rob, and it was really wonderful for me to read your feature and to see someone who wasn't, you know, initially, maybe who didn't grow up familiar with Tamil cinema or with this director in particular, discover him, you know, kind of recently and then go back and watch his filmography and then try to understand this particular regional cinema of India. And to just give a little bit of context to listeners, I think many people already know this, but it bears repeating, which is that Bollywood is not Indian cinema. The two are often taken synonymously, I've, I've noticed, you know, abroad. And Bollywood is really Hindi language, commercial cinema, primarily made out of Bombay. And India has a number of regional cinemas which cater to specific states in the country which are distinctive linguistically and culturally. The southern Indian cinemas are especially popular and dominant. And Tamil cinema is definitely one of uh, one of the most robust regional industries, I would say. It has a very long history. It's also growing more and more popular nationally. And I would hope internationally too. And it's really great to see because... I think a lot of people would argue that Tamil and other Southern cinemas actually have more experimentation and more politically committed filmmaking than Hindi language or Bollywood cinema right now. 
And I think Vetri Marin is very much part of that wave. He's a young filmmaker who's very literary. He is influenced, I would say, by a lot of um, European and international action uh, and like mob cinema and also a little bit of neorealism. He's kind of using all of that to make movies focused on Tamil subcultures, which are very deeply researched and very regionally oriented. But at the same time, has these connections to a lot of uh, global cinemas and movements. And I, I think it's part of, is, is part of this new wave of Tamil cinema that is speaking to a much larger audience than before. And the best evidence of that is how you discovered Betrimaran. So I, I was thinking maybe you could start off by talking about uh, where you first saw Betrimaran film and what that experience was like and then what that prompted you to do. Yeah, I first heard of uh, his film Vada Chennai, I believe from a tweet by Danny Kasman from Mubi, who had saw, seen it at a festival in China, I think. And I saw that it was opening not in New York City, but in New Jersey. And it was the only way to see it. So after work, I jumped on a bus and went to New Jersey and went to a movie theater. I couldn't find it. It was in a plaza. And then I had to go inside of, a, I think it was a Big Lots or a Dollar General. And they had to instruct me to go downstairs because the theater was in the parking garage down below. It was this old multiplex um, that had became a haven for Indian cinema um, where they just showed Indian films. And so I went down there. It was nearly empty. And uh, when I got in there, and it uh, blew me away um, from many different angles. Uh, it was a very densely detailed narrative structure and very complex flashback, flashback sequences. Um, and just really vibrant performances from the stars down to the supporting characters. Um, very grand gangster melodrama that was very absorbing, um, at, even at its, you know, 160 minute length plus, even though I think he cut it down from like five hours or something, of course. Um, but yeah, and that's how I started on this path and I wanted to see everything else he did after that experience. Um, and I had no experience with Tamil cinema, really. Um, and so this started me on this this journey. And, you know, a lot of his earlier films, especially Reckless Man, his first features, I was not able to see it with English subtitles. I can only watch it in an unsubtitled version. Um, the other ones I was able to find. But uh, it's definitely more of a challenge um, as Tamil cinema has not been well distributed in the U.S., at least uh, in English subtitled versions. Um, so it is kind of undiscovered, uh, like, wealth of cinema that we just don't see here, um, which is unfortunate. And, but hopefully this article and, uh, you know, this conversation will kind of inspire people to go digging because it's not going to fall in your lap. You actually have to seek it out. Um, and so I hope this inspires people to do that. No, I I think your article um, has great potential to do that just because it uh, you do a really good job of bringing your own this this trajectory of discovery using that to kind of draw people into his filmography, which which is what I really enjoyed. Um, I you know I was going to ask you to maybe describe North Chennai a little bit, Vada Chennai, which roughly mm-hmm. translates to North Chennai. I think. The subtitles of the movie say Once Upon a Time in North Chennai, mm-hmm. which sounds even grander. <laughs> and anyway, I was going to ask you to maybe give us a little rundown of the plot. But then I thought, how in the world are you going to do that in mm. the time that we have? Oh, it's impossible <laughs> because there are 
It's basically details an entire town. Vada Chennai is the main character played by Danish, who's uh, Vetrimaran's main collaborator, and he's a, a big star in, in South India. And he allows these films to get financed, basically, his presence. Um, he is... Uh, he grows up poor in this small seaside town, and he gets uh, he plays this game of carom, which I hadn't encountered before. It's kind of a tabletop uh, game, like pool, except you flick it with your fingers. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's it's a very popular family game. Like I, I, we played it all the time growing up. We have a carom board at home, and it was brought out for all festivals and gatherings. So. Um, I don't know. I think I thought that was a really clever, already such a clever mm-hmm. and specific detail to build this mob saga around. Sure. And yeah. what I quickly learned is that uh, um, Marin, you know, he researches his these areas for up to a couple of years before he shoots these films. So these these very, um, very intensely researched, even down to, you know, the, the dialect you know, their their lifestyle and the games they play. And, and Karam turns out to be a very cinematic game, as it turns out, which is helpful. Um, but yeah, Vetri Marin really deeply researches before each production. It usually takes him a year or two um, before each of his films, before they come out, researching the dialect, the lifestyle, all of that before he starts shooting. Um, and that really shows up in Vada Chennai. He plays this game of Karam and then eventually gets pulled into this gangster saga because there's this one mobster who has the, the town under his control, but eventually his uh, followers split and betray him. And then there's these warring gangs that try to control the town. And one of them uh, wants to become like t- hooked up with developers and kind of sell out the town. And this character that Danush plays, I believe his name is Anbu, he um, tries to kick the developers out and form his own gang to keep the town under his control, a town of working class people. Um, and it's basically the setup to where he takes control. And it's just the opening salvo of a proposed trilogy. Right. And we should say that this, you know, you've given a really lo- a nice linear summation of the events of the plot, sure. but it's, it's not, I mean, it's not linear. It's not even really, it doesn't become fully comprehensible until much later, I would say, because it's there's just so much cross-cutting between timelines and plot lines. Mm-hmm. And the you frequently are opening and ending in medias res and in the middle of um, these action sequences. And then you work backwards to fill in the plot details. Yeah, it's a really remarkable feat of editing, the way it can toggle back and forth, even just going a few days or a few decades. Um, it's, it's very seamless and an immersive kind of narrative filmmaking that, in the essay, I compare to Mariano Yinyas's uh, La Flor, the 14-hour film, except Vetri Moran condenses it here to, you know, two hours and 40 minutes. Um, and it's a remarkable accomplishment, yeah, but there's no way to distill it um, to encompass everything because there are just so many characters and you get a sense of their lives. There are no throwaway pieces, everybody could have this whole digression that you would be happy to go down um but uh that is one of the main pleasures of the film for me yeah and i'm curious you know the the sort of basic premise of the film which is these gangsters and um this plucky little guy who 
who's like a Robin Hood-ish character. I mean, many of them are, and I think this is a recurring figure in his films, is these vigilante uh, type characters who defend their community against corrupt forces, whether they're yeah. authorities or whether they're uh, gangsters, you know, more malicious gangsters. And yeah, every and, all of these films, the all the forces of the government, they're they're all corrupt from the get go. There's no, and every film you have to have either you're a vigilante, you're a gangster to put in some form of control. Um, yeah, his depiction of the police force in every film, but especially in interrogation, is one of totally owned and operated by money and and uh, and yeah, and that's that's like the the basis from which all of his films, you know, begin. That's like an understanding. Um, so that is, I was kind of surprised by that, but the more of Tamil films I've seen, that's kind of like a recurring theme in a lot of these films. I've been trying to watch some Rajanikanth films and one I'm watching now called Thalapathy is um, Raj, Rajanikanth is playing this orphan boy who teams up with another gangster to basically keep order <laughs> because there's no, because the cops are just entirely corrupt. So this might not be original with um, Vetri Moran, but he's certainly... Uh, building a densely detailed world out of that and it's it really it's very very i don't know maybe cynical depiction of the way the government operates there these basic premises are not uncommon in tamil cinema as yeah. you're discovering watching rajnikanth movies yeah. and we should say that dhanush is rajnikanth's son-in-law, son-in-law and yeah. so he really is uh royalty Part and of the so dynasty, yeah. it is pretty remarkable that he does um he he does a lot of I think films and roles that aren't blockbuster, you know, that are the traditional blockbuster. He's mm. a very committed actor, uh, and the kind of actor I think you don't see as much in Bollywood or Hindi cinema anymore. But I think what to me makes them distinctive is this assiduous attention to detail. Mm-hmm. So to dial it back also a little bit, we should mention that Vetri Marin has made five features, has directed five features, he's produced other films. Um, his first two films, The Ruthless Man and Arena, were sort of, I think, a little amateurs, like more amateurish takes on similar themes. And Arena, I remember, was when he really burst onto the scene. Mm-hmm. He won an, a national award, which is India's like state honor for uh, for filmmaking. Everyone was talking about it. The film is about these rival cockfighting gangs in a Tamil city called Madurai. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, like the Karim sort of premise, this is just such a weird and zany little uh, world to set of a mob kind of drama within yes, cockfighting. And what I love about it is you go very deep into the rituals and the rules and the lifestyle that goes into being cockfighters. And like on the outside, it looks like it could be kind of an absurd premise but he goes into such detail and how these people operate and the training and the specific rules of that world that you become invested in it even if the idea of a cockfight to you is is morally objectionable um but you still get wrapped up in it simply because of the um the respect it's 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 given in the context of the world that he's creating and the fact that he um you know collaborates so much with the local people who are involved in those worlds um, I love the detail that one of the people, because as you talk about what a phenomenon it was, that one of the supporting actors in that film, he got 
he is now known by its arena in English, but in Tamil, it's Adu Kalam. And he, now he's known by Adu Kalam. Right. Uh, when he's credited, and he, he, he acts a lot in, in Vetri Maran's films. Um, and so he's, uh, that's just a offhand detail I thought was amazing that he just is now known by the name of the film that, that he film. became. Yeah, and, and that's what I, I remember that film being monumental in that way and everyone talking about it because it was this, uh, again, a familiar formula, but placed within this subculture, this very unusual setting and, um, you know, treated with a lot of attention to detail that I think that's what sets Vetrimaran apart. Mm -hmm. So there's Ruthless Man Arena or Ardukalam. And then um, you had Visarane or Interrogation. Yeah, and that's quite a departure for him anyway. Yeah, and that I believe played at the Venice Film Festival and sort mm -hmm. of garnered him more attention abroad in the uh, and it was the um india submission for the academy awards for best foreign film which is a big deal and this one uh tanush is not starring in but he produced which allowed it to get made i'm sure and so this is based on a novel um i believe it was called lockdown um and an autobiography a memoir autobiographical actually, yes. that's right um about some migrant workers uh who get kind of targeted for a crime they didn't commit because these cops just want to close the case because they're being pressured from above. So these guys don't speak the language. And so they're easily, uh, you know, they're eas easily massaged and, and beaten into confessing. So they're arrested and they go through this bureaucratic hell of uh, being incarcerated for a crime they didn't commit just because they don't speak the language and they're, they're poor. Um, and it's kind of a, it's a really brutal, uh, dark and unrelenting film. And it's remarkable in that way. And it's sometimes I kind of felt it was um, repetitive because it was so uh, unrelenting. Whereas in his other films, I think there's this variety of styles that he's working through that I found more appealing just on a stylistic level. But interrogation on a, as like a polemic is like hits you you know, in the gut, and it's very, you know, in term, for to the wider world, I think interrogation is the one that really put him on the map, in the festival map anyway. Yeah, and I, the thing that I always remember about interrogation is just, you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. I mean, mm -hmm. I was chewing on my nails, because mm -hmm. these characters are just going through one ordeal after the other, and it's this thing he does so well, Vetramaran does so well, is this constantly shifting relations of power, constantly shifting stakes. Yes. And in that film, it's not this, again, it's not the mafia, it's not gangs, it's, it's people caught in a very real bureaucracy. Yes. And I think, yeah, again, he does that with so much genre flair, but also much more of a sobering, realistic focus than his other films. And... The thing that, again, is surprising to me is Visarine, or Interrogation, is, again, the film that sort of, like you said, put him on the map, but it's also so local in its details. I mean, the film sure. is about migrants who move from the state of Tamil Nadu to the neighboring state of Andhra Pradesh, and a lot of what happens in the film is because they don't speak the language, yeah. you know, and th these are states that share a border, that have a certain history of collaboration and rivalry, and these are people, this is actually, you know, uh, laborers do move across these state borders and they became, become really precarious figures due to either the sort of like not 
knowing the language or becoming easy targets um, for various petty crimes. Mm. And then the film also has these little elements of... Um, of caste commentary about what are the castes from which people are usually roped into the system and mm-hmm. on whom crimes are pinned. Even within the police force in that film, there's a certain like, I mean, the good guy. And um, the good cop. Yeah, right. the good, the sort of good cop. Not no, really. there's no good mm-hmm. cop. Like you said in your article, there's never a good cop no, in a Vetri The more film. sympathetic one. Yeah, mm-hmm. who's at least trying to do, uh, you know, right by these prisoners. Um, his caste identity is also referenced and that sort of, you know, uh, people that his colleagues refer to him pejoratively as as belonging to a lower caste. And so there's all these little details that go into this very complex mix and it's still so translatable, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, even though the micro is not, might be so obvious to viewers, the the whole, the overall impact is, is clear. I mean, these are, you know, migrants who are being abused and... Um, you know, that's as relevant as ever. And and then, so that's interrogation. And then you have Varachanai, which is what you saw. Yeah, and to me, that's his greatest, greatest film. Um, I should say that, you know, interrogation um, is on Netflix. So it's probably the most viewed film in his career by now, maybe. Right. At, at least outside of India. And so then comes Varachanai. And mm. um, I think Varachanai really like you already said earlier, kind of brings together the themes of all of these films in just a very thrilling, very densely packed combination. And then we'll talk about this a little bit later, his latest film, Asuran, which actually opened just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen, so I'll rely on you, Rob, to um, talk about that. I'll try my best. (laughs) But so this is his body of work, just to give people a snapshot. And I think I was thinking about this the other day. So, okay, what sets him apart, right? And what is so distinctive? And for some reason, I was thinking of Ken Loach while mm. re-watching Varachane recently. Mm-hmm. And even while watching Interrogation or Articulum. And because I, I just saw Sorry, We Missed You. Mm-hmm. And obviously, two filmmakers in like totally different stylistic planets. It's true. They can see they have similar interests, though. Then. Yeah, and it's it's this idea of really tracking a certain process, whether it's of bureaucracy or government, a certain system of oppression down to its smallest details, down, you know, really tracking how a human moves through the motions of these systems. Mm-hmm. So in Varachanai, what is really captivating for me is those moments where, where they have council meetings. Mm-hmm. And the whole process of gentrification yeah. is laid out in, in this super schematic way. Again, it's wrapped within a film that has sword fighting, that has some beautifully choreographed action sequences, that has romance. That's my least favorite aspect of a veteran film, but it has all of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get into that. But yes, as a lot of Tamil films, uh, female roles are very token, um, the romantic arm candy for the most part. Although Vada Chennai does have the character of Chandra who's like, she's she's the one the seeking the most vengeance she's a key i won't give anything away but she's quite a remarkable um character but that's and with a seething like her gaze is just seething yeah you can she'll strike you dead she's <clears throat> kind of a medusa figure um or i guess more more apt would be lady macbeth but um in any case but yes uh vada chennai 
I also think the f- the film is great because of we haven't talked about this yet, but how he incorporates music. I mean, obviously, the use of music in, in Indian cinema is integral, and the use of musical sequences. I mean, going back to Ruthless Man, the musical sequences to me are pretty clunky. They're unrelated to the action on screen, but more and more as he goes along, the the music becomes more further and further integrated into the action. Like they become organic parts of it, and the. Um, there's this kind of Morricone-esque use of, uh, of vocal harmony. <laughs> like, they're not saying words, they're just saying, you know, uh, vowels. And it's very rhythmic and intense, and re- really underlines the kind of violence that happens in the film. My favorite action sequence is in the, the prison. Nanbu is in prison for a lot of it, kind of pinned between these two gangs. And he, has, he is tasked to assassinate one of the other leaders, and um, it happens during this uh, carom tournament where they're in this tense, this tented area and somebody kicks down the pillars and the, the top of the tent falls down. And as it's flowing up and down and there's dust rising and it becomes very dark, um, uh, it's just a beautiful kind of uh, phantasmagoric kind of way to film an assassination. Um, and that is just one little aspect of this diamond-like structure that becomes the film as he forms his alliances and understands the structures of power that are keeping his people in place and then about to be driven out because this new the new leader is selling out to the big rich developers who are developing this (laughs) comical uh, office space and he's like well they're going to be relocated promises of relocation but they're fishermen so they're going to be moved away from their base of operations um so many different layers here and I, I i do remember now when we were talking about censorship that he did remove some scenes from vada chennai because there are some complaints from some of the fishermen from the town that he worked with in making the film i forget which sequence i think it was one on a boat with uh and the way the one of the female characters was treated. And I know he removed a sequence from the film, but that actually to me proves that how closely he is in touch with the people that he works with in these features um, and very responsive to what their uh, needs are. Now, Asaran is a little different because it's the first film he made with and a very quick turnaround. Like he usually has a year plus of preparation. And, and I just want to give a little close. Sure. Is um, Asuran, which is the, the latest film and i don't believe it has an english title but asuran the word means demon Mm -hmm. so just you know i I think that's probably important a little bit to understand maybe the themes of the movie yes you tell me because Uh, yeah and uh i think the demon is is danush he's uh introduced as like this kind of he's an alcoholic old man trying to keep his family together on this uh desiccated plot of land there is, of course, uh, uh, <laughs> an evil uh, land developer who's trying to buy the lands from him. Of course. And there's this whole, uh, and as the course of events go, his son, one of his sons, who becomes more and more rebellious and wants to defend their honor against him, uh, commits a violent act and they're on the run in the woods. And that's basically the intermission. And then you further learn more about Danusha's backstory. Um, where he was uh, basically a, a bootlegger of liquor, but also an extremely violent, uh, rowdy character. Um, 
and which is why he's so good at fighting, which comes in handy towards the end with an amazingly intense um, hatchet (laughs) sword fight at the ends, um, which is one of the most bloody and intense sequences I've seen um, this year. I would say that, and there's this uh, UK fight movie called Avengements. Those are the two best fight sequences of the year. Um, No, his his action sequences are really quite stunning the one i'm thinking of is um the end sequence in interrogation mm-hmm. where these migrants are in running the, from the police in this field yeah and it's like this swampy field tall yeah. grass and the police have flashlight mm-hmm. and it's just this uh, beautiful play of light and sound you know there's the rustling of the grass and the roving light of the spotlight and these bodies really you know running for their lives and there's within that choreography there's also a drama of betrayal and trust because they're trying to you know we and the character are trying to understand if the somewhat good cop is an actually good cop yeah and it's, yeah he really is able to weave the action into the narrative so they're kind of the seamless interplay and there's right. a sequence similar to that in Osiran where he's being um he and his son are being chased through a field um and there's also a sequence where they're being chased by by a very violent warthog. I wouldn't want to meet this warthog out <laughs> in real life. But um and they're able to to subdue him. But it's similar in its uh sense of atmosphere and doom and um and location. Um and yeah, so Osran kind of to me reworks a lot of the things he's done in previous films and it's very effective and his sense of craft is certainly still there, but uh, not as much the um, the sense of location and the sense of uh, working out the the world of the subculture as fully as he does in his previous films. Mm. Just because there's no, he didn't have time. Like if you see interviews with him, he's you know he's complaining how he, immediately complaining about how quickly he had to finish it. He's very open about it, and he would like they announced the release date, and he's still shooting it, and um, so I'm not sure. I mean, he just probably wanted to work while still getting Vada Chennai 2 off the ground. Mm. Um, and it, to me, it feels like kind of a placeholder, like a really well-crafted placeholder. But it's not as much of a cathedral-like structure as, as Vada Chennai. So, I mean, I'm really uh, looking forward to... Ho- I'm hoping Vada Chennai 2 starts soon. I haven't read anything about that, but I assume that's going to come up next. Yeah, and and I just, um, you know, talking about Asuran and in general his filmography, I think maybe we should devote a little time to talking about Dhanush in particular. We already sure. we already did that, as as we said, he is kind of acting loyalty and sort of an unusual presence. But what I also, I think, have always really liked about him is he's a charmer. Mm-hmm. He's a proper romantic hero. But he's also this wiry, uh, self-effacing presence. I mean, he he's can switch. incredibly thin. He's not like a strapping <laughs> action hero. He's yeah, very wiry and, um, but very, but very confident and like he can. He is very like. Uh, he has he has an immediate presence, like striking his way through the frame in this kind of slithering, uh, <laughs> the slithering way. Um, I can see he has this charisma um, that is different from other Indian stars that I've seen. It's less uh, like megawatt and more reserved. 
yeah, I mean, he is not a larger than life presence. That's no. what I think I've I've come to realize. And that's why in all these films, he always starts out as second in command or, mm-hmm. you know, he's never the head honcho. No. Almost Rajnikanth usually, you know, in his movies is, is the central figure. He's yes. kind of the boss. And Dhanush is always, you know, he's the trusted right-hand man. He yeah, is he's the, the sidekick, like in Adu Kalam or... Um... Or the protege, or you know these, and and I think he just straddles those two extremes so well. He's this earnest, scrappy, um, kind of very honest and appealing figure, but he can also switch to heroics, and he can also switch to a kind of um, macho, you know, mm. just uh, a, a bravado and like swagger. And uh, I think, yeah, I think very like one of the best reasons to watch his movies are to see this this very specific aura that I think Dhanush has. Absolutely. I mean, he he also has this very childlike like face to him, which I think people could draws people in. Uh, he has this kind of innocence and then he undercuts that. <laughs> but Ostron, I think, is his really most fascinating performance because he starts out, he's this wreck, like an alcoholic wreck, um, you know, near, near death. He's just very, he, and he puts his voice into this gravelly place and it's uh, it's very moving because you usually, usually don't see him that vulnerable. Um, you do see him, you know, he's down on his luck. You do see him, you know, poor, but I've never seen him look that defeated. And I think for a big star, that's even though he <laughs> comes out on top in the end as he has to, I've never seen him look so defeated in a film before, and it's very moving. It, the most moving performance I've seen from him so far is in Asram. Um, so he was, you know, born in Tamil Nadu, and his mother was a novelist. And, and a very well-regarded novelist, which I think has... And he had a literary upbringing. He studied English literature. Yeah, he yeah. was um, on the course to get a degree in English literature, and then he saw a lecture um, by the filmmaker... Balu Mahendra, um, which totally changed the course of his life, and he started, you know, apprenticing with Mahendra, with Balu Mahendra, and um, started working with him on the series. They had to make it's an enormous amount of material. I think it was like they were filming like fifty-two short stories or something, and adapting it into a TV show, where he really had to learn concision and mm-hmm. uh, in writing screenplays, which I think really could help him in and making some of his future films. And Balu Mahendra, I, I haven't really seen much of his work, but my understanding when reading up on him is that he could shift back and forth between kind of big budget uh, mainstream entertainments as well as doing smaller scale um, intimate work, which is also something Vetchimran seems to emulate. But I think he, Balu Mahendra is somebody I want to in, in investigate more as kind of one of the major influences on him. Um, along Actually, with- I saw, I, I was watching an interview with, Petra Martin recently uh, it was an old interview I think he did when interrogation was selected for the Oscars and yeah. it didn't make it through and he said this very interesting thing he said he grew up being very enamored with the Oscars and he and his friends would watch everything that was nominated and, yeah. and then working with Mahendra broke the myth of the Oscar for him <laughs> and it was sort of this moment of understanding the best Oscars don't mean that the best films win no. and, you know and the Oscars are actually part of a larger commercial structure mm-hmm. and i don't know i i thought that was was very insightful and also gives me a little bit of a peek into 
how right from the beginning he's had an idea of what good cinema means to him. Oh yeah, and yeah, and, and Mandra clearly a pivotal influence, um, as well as Mani Ratnam seems to be like one of his pull stars as a Tamil Tamil filmmaker. Um, so yeah, and I think another thing I wanted to discuss is the the state of of distribution mm-hmm. for these Tamil films in the U.S., which is essentially just for Indian uh, communities in the U.S. There, there's no advertising beyond that community. There's no structures in place for publicity. Um, it's very difficult to get you know, screeners or advanced screenings or anything like that. And that's because, you know, they're very successful. They, they don't need to. And perhaps there's, um, I, I don't know how that is, is going to change. Um, but I don't do you have, you have any opinions on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was telling you before we started recording, um, and we should mention this, but is also a producer Yeah, and he is less prolific as a director than his contemporaries in Tamil cinema, which, yes. you know, changed with Asuran was the first time he made this, these back to back Right, films. But generally speaking, he works much slower than Right. And others. he's clearly not happy with having taken the speedier <laughs> approach. No. And, but he also, he does spend his time producing films, which share the, the kind of, political commitment and mm-hmm. the you know kinds of narratives that he enjoys making as well and one of those films that i love is this film called kaka murte or the crow's egg yes from 2015 and i wrote a chapter of my undergrad thesis on it and my mm-hmm. thesis was about um independent cinema after india's economic liberalization in the 1990s and sort of how independent cinema in india has grappled with the effects of that Mm-hmm. both on the film industry and on culture in general. And that film is just a perfect film about neoliberal culture and its oh, yeah. effects on, on working-class people, especially children. So, I mean, it's a lovely film. It's about these two um, kind of poor kids who want to have a slice of pizza at this new, you know, Western westernized pizza shop that opened because they've never tasted it before. And they won't be let inside because they don't, they're not dressed appropriately right because they look like they look, kids. right yeah um and it's very you know kind of neorealist it's you know i don't know if you agree in its approach um i think so yeah and um i mean i'm always a little bit hesitant to describe like popular indian films as neorealist because mm-hmm. i think it's almost like this desire to fit them into the sure it's an know. easy yeah and i think they have this film also it definitely has neorealist impulses but then it's also so wonderfully purely melodramatic that's true yeah but it, it's a really lovely film and mm-hmm. you know i the reason i brought it up was because while writing this thesis and i was doing that in the states i found it so hard to get a copy of the film to watch yeah. or rewatch and i had to have like a relative buy <laughs> a dvd in chennai and like do this whole pa- you know pass it from one person to another until yeah. it got to me here and that's a film that actually went to some festivals and it mm-hmm. got acclaimed. So it is, it's it's kind of sad that those types of films, which I think represent what the best of what contemporary Indian cinema has to offer, aren't you know making their way to the states to cinephiles all over the world in a in an easier way. Yeah, I mean it's frustrating. That's why I tried to seek out Vada Chennai in the first place because I know there's a lot going on there and it's just not even discussed outside of Indian communities um, in the U.S. anyway, which is frustrating. We have such a, 
Right, we live in, in an era of plenty, or so we think, of, uh, of film, but there's still so much that we're not, you know, you know not, not allowed to see, but not easy to see. You really have to, to seek it out. It's not going to come to you. So I just want to say thank you again for writing this feature, because oh, sure. criticism is definitely a way in which, in which people get connected to new cinemas and new filmmakers. And and I urge everyone to read Rob's article, and I hope that inspires people to, you know, start burrowing into Tamil cinema like like you did after watching Varachennai. So yeah, and I'm still going. Now I'm doing Rajanikanth. <laughs> you know, it's an endless well of uh, creativity. Um, but thanks for having me on. It was so much fun. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast with music by Greg Angi. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comment. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. Music Box Films is bringing the art house to your house with Music Box Direct, a new streaming service dedicated to curating a diverse repertoire of films and television series from around the world. Try it free for one month on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, or desktop by signing up online with promo code FILM at musicbox.direct. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, featuring an extensive interview with Greta Gerwig about her triumphant new adaptation of Little Women, and essays on Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, The Safdie Brothers' Uncut Gems, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and the action films of Tamil director Vetri Madan. Support independent, non-profit film journalism today at filmcomment.com.